Welcome to Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. In this episode, we offer part two of our continued discussion where we throw our hat into the open office debate and discuss alternative solutions. I'm joined by Dominic Iacobucci and Drew Susco of BHDP. As always, I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's pick up where we left off. We've dug into the open office concept quite a bit, um, probably beat it up a little too. What would you consider a better option? Like, what should we be talking about instead of open office? Because I'm at the point where I'd rather not hear about it at all because I don't even feel like we design open offices at BHDP. So, what's a better conversation? So I think even in the question, there's still the idea of a, a false binary. So open office, yeah. open office versus something else. And the reality, I think, is um, there is no singular solution, and nor we promote a singular solution. Well, actually, Drew, I'd like to argue that there still is a binary. Good design versus bad design. <laughs> so, <laughs> can I give but you? But no, a, I agree with you. I, yeah. I, I agree with your original context uh-huh. of open you took me office off. verse. I don't like anything binary. And it, it, only light switches are binary, and you can put dimmers on those. So why not? <laughs> right? No, but uh, <laughs> the majority of our our clients today are, if not adopting, at least considering um, a variety of different solutions for their for their workplace. Um, <clears throat> and so, what we were seeing emerge is sometimes wholesale, and other times, you know, in small segments, prototypes, things of that nature. The adoption of um, workplaces that are designed with activities in mind. I won't even say that they're wholesale activity-based workplaces, but at a minimum, we're starting to see our our clients um, really begin to consider the nature of the work that's happening across their portfolio, the variety of that work, the needs of their the users, the people who are actually living and breathing and um, using the space on an everyday basis, and des- using that as a design generator as opposed to designing from a top-down standpoint, which is to say, I have so much square footage, I can fit so many things into that square footage, and that is going to dictate how many people will fit in my office. Yeah. And so... Yeah, I'd agree with you, Drew. I mean, with that top-down mentality, the thing to point out with that is typically that's a hierarchical design process. If you're a VP, you get an office that looks like this or a cubicle that's this big and work yourself down. Mm -hmm. And we still work with agencies that design that way, um, but they have a reason for doing that, which means it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just maybe they haven't explored anything else. Um, Yeah. Well, you mentioned working with different agencies. So the reality is there are a variety of different clients out there, right? So some clients are more collaborative or, say, in the design industry. Um, Maybe you work in an advertising agency, for instance, and it's all about ideas and idea generation, idea sharing. That space is going to look very different from, you know, potentially a a government administration building where, you know, you you have people coming in through the front door and potentially asking questions. So you need a, you know, a service mentality at the front door and then potentially behind your process lots of information and so the type of environment that works for that particular organization is very different from an advertising agency and the reality is from a design perspective we need to meet both of those organizations where they are today help them see where they might be tomorrow and design space accordingly so what does activity-based work look like like if you could use words since we don't have pretty pictures (laughs) right now um, how would you define an activity-based work setting well, we can put up some pretty pictures on bhdb.com and you can check those out there. But um, an activity-based work environment 
basically the idea is that you'd need to identify the variety of activities that are occurring in a particular office. So sometimes we talk about, say, concentration or focus or getting stuff done. That's a particular modality of work. Sometimes we talk about collaboration, but the reality is collaboration can occur at lots of different scales with lots of different people um, in lots of different ways. So, so sometimes, let's say I'm collaborating with someone who's a remote employee um, that's sitting across the pond over in England, for instance. I might be collaborating with that person, but it's just me in an environment. And so I need a space where I can go potentially close a door and have a virtual meeting with that person. Sometimes I need to collaborate with my superior or someone who reports to me on a on a, you know, a two-person meeting. That might need to happen in a more formal setting if we're talking, say, a performance review and we need to close the door because there's you know, difficult information that needs to be communicated. Or it could happen potentially in a relaxed environment. If we're early on in the year and we're setting goals and we really want to talk about what we want to accomplish this year, the tenor of that meeting is going to feel different. So the way that we design off, um, workplaces with activities in mind is to identify those different types of interactions that are going to occur in the environment or lack of interaction with the, with concentration in mind. Identify those, understand how frequently they're occurring, and then use that as a design generator, but not necessarily a design algorithm. Even in an activity-based work setting where you're talking about um, the difference between that and open, open offices, you have more uh, points of choice where people can do what they need to do. So the space supports whatever the need is because it could change at a moment's notice. However, the number one complaint about open office is I think there's a fear when the cubicle walls go down no matter the size of the group. And that fear brings into that, well, noise is going to be a distraction. Um, and you've got different types of noise. We were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, the three types of noise, Dominic, that you were talking about, how, um, one is the noise that, you know, it's just noise that drowns out any speaking that might ha happen. And then there's another one where the noise is just low enough where you're being disrupted by people talking. You can hear the conversation, yeah. you feel drawn Irre in. Irrelevant speech. Irrelevant speech, yeah. It's not what you're working on and it's distracting. And then the other is absolute silence, which is also distracting. How do we um, mitigate sound even in an activity-based setting. Like, All right, so, you, so Brian, you brought up like 15 things. Yep, in one that's question. what I do. So that's uh, <laughs> it's effective as always, so we appreciate that. Yeah, um, answer A through Q in whatever order you Sound, <laughs> go. <laughs> so let's build first on activity settings. Okay. So the first thing is to have a activity setting-based workspace work correctly, you have to do what Drew mentioned before. You have to say, what are all the activities that people are going to do? And then ensure that once you understand those activities and how often they happen, start to say, how do you design space to support said activity? So maybe you're a lawyer and one of the things that you have to do is you have to constantly read legal briefs. When you're reading a legal brief, how are you reading it? Are you reading it where you're just holding it and you're sitting in a chair? Or are you reading it at a table where you're referencing multiple other documents. Both of those things are very different in terms of the type of space that they need and the ergonomics to support that setting. And maybe the answer is both. So you, you create space for both of those. Now, as you build on that, once you build activity settings to support all of the different activities that may be out there, which noting to Drew's point, is not the same for every company or for every position or role, you then have to take into account culture and leadership. And this is kind of something you were alluding to, Brian, but 
just because we have those settings doesn't mean that the culture or the leadership looks favorably upon people using those settings and going and getting away from their desk. If you have a culture where the leadership doesn't support that, it doesn't matter if you create an activity setting environment or not, it's not going to be successful. So this all comes into the, the question of noise. So depending on what that activity setting is and what it requires to be successful may change how you create noise within space. And to your point, there's kind of the three different types of noise that kind of talk about when we talk about the individual workstation. Because the three that you're talking about is how does that deal with the individual workstation? If you're in an open office environment or any environment where you hear a lot of background noise, it has the opportunity to actually make you feel more stressful. And there's studies out there that prove as much, but it doesn't necessarily distract you. Now, when you start getting into irrelevant speech and overhearing other people's conversations, what happens is it starts to distract you because you start to hear that conversation. You're wondering what's coming next, or you're wondering if it has any impact on you and what you do. Now, there's some companies that will actually say they want that to occur because they believe there's knowledge and learning that happens when that type of overhearing <clears throat> occurs or there's collaboration. So I hear you talking about some problem that happened on a project associated with, well, we're architects, so we'll, we'll use this, right? Associated with a door configuration. And as you talk about it, I overhear it, I'm like, oh wait, I have a similar configuration that I'm doing on one of my projects. I now know that I can go talk to you and learn from you. Um, a lot of times when organizations are trying to do this, they're trying to do this with knowledge transfer. So with older mentors and younger mentees. Now with that, the last type of noise is, is really silence. And when most people are talking about this open conversation, that's what they're talking about. They're like, how do I get to a point where it's silence and no one's distracting me? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the reality is that as things get quieter, the, the smaller the noise, the more it grabs your attention mm -hmm. because you start to dial into the perception changes. So your perception is, is totally different at that point. Now, now with that, depending on all the different activity settings that you set up, you can start to change how noise interacts in those spaces and how it helps people to achieve what they're trying to achieve in that space. Had a client the other day that was actually saying that he was surprised that more innovation spaces don't have music as part of them because he believes that depending on the type of music that's playing will totally impact the type of output from the same conversation if it was occur five times. Provided it's White Snake. <laughs> Provided it's White Snake. Here I go again on my own. Wait, that's, that's, that's not, solo yeah. work. That's focus work, yeah. So, so all of that stuff is kind of interrelated um, and kind of feeds to the same conversation. But most of the time, when we talk activity settings, we're talking about creating place to meet the need of a person at a given point in time, and they're constantly moving. Unfortunately, when we're talking about open office conversations, no one is ever talking about all the other space. They're only talking about individual workspace. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that you, he brought up music because I'd heard, I think it was a commercial on the radio or some sort of soundbite from Boomer Esiason talking about some university that I don't remember the name of, how the coach was looking at um, instilling the sense of um, delight in his employees. And he had noticed that they all listened to headphones when they worked out individually. So he thought, what if we played music on the field during practice? And it turned out not only was it not a distraction, but they, the team was way more into it. Um, so I, it's just weird that that came up recently. Well, yeah. 
I was going to say, and the reality of that is, is you have to be careful of what that music is because <laughs> it will elicit how people perform in different ways based off of the level of that music. So if you got something that's hard rock, right? All of a sudden, people get into the beat and they're moving off of that beat. Whereas if you have something that's mellow, they just kind of mm-hmm. kind of gel into their chair and just are just relaxing and enjoying their time. Right? One person's white stink is another person's Nickelback. I think yeah. is what Dominic's trying to say. <laughs> I, I am. I am. Me? But you mentioned so you mentioned identifying all these different modes of work, right? Needs for concentration, needs for collaboration, and you also actually talked about. I don't know if you you met you thought about this in your mind's eye, but the relationship amongst those different activities. And so in designing agile environments, it's not just about identifying what the modes are. It's also identifying the relationships among those different modes and so oftentimes in architectural language that means um, you know uh, locating particular um, activities in relation to one another in such a way as to say create a series of activities that um, you know are are correlational Um, start to script say an experience for people within space now in layman's terms what that might mean is putting the noisy stuff away from um, the, the stuff that requires say deep concentration but the reality is in, in these sorts of environments, it's not just important to identify the different needs of people, but also to compose those needs in such a way that makes sense to the occupants as well. Interesting. So I was reading about sound. Um, back to this article, where I better find the title. Um, the Occupant Productivity and Office Indoor Environment Quality, a review of the literature. <laughs> like that, uh, trust me, that's the article's way longer than the title. It's a page turner. Yeah. Exactly. But it, it is fascinating because um, they were talking about the impact of sound on the senses. I mean, well, sound is a sense, obviously, um, because hearing is one of them. But the impact on your physiology is what I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference of two decibels in sound, or 2.6 decibels, is about the equivalent of 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit in temperature. So if you imagine like the sound going up 10 decibels, it's almost like the temperature changed you know, 6 to 8 degrees with trying to do quick math and not backing it up, please nobody check that. And decibels <laughs> are logarithmic as well, right? So a tenfold increase is yeah, but pr- it, very dramatic. But the idea is that you know if the temperature went up by ten degrees, you would notice that and be uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. the same thing with decibels, mm-hmm. uh, with sound. So that um, that level of physical discomfort increases as the sound increases, and like you said, ex- exponentially. So it, it's something that's important to consider, even no matter how the design is done. But um, it does seem that's that's one of the biggest fears. Right? Well, also, thanks for answering all fifteen of my questions. Well, that was I, nice. I tried my best. I didn't Dominic. write them all down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I think to kind of build on kind of the direction that Drew's going over here and kind of connecting back into your sound thing, since you're so interested in decibels. I am. <laughs> Which I won't speak about decibels, but I just want to acknowledge your interest in decibels. I appreciate that about you. <laughs> but you, you start talking about the design of space in such a way that it's, it has a progression that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The other side of that is every individual space along that progression, every activity setting, needs to consider what's actually occurring in that space and how the space wants to be used to make that activity excel to its potential. So let's take sound in, for instance. One of the things that we've noticed in the last, I don't say three to five years, right, with the, with the change in audio technology from analog to digital. Digital is much crisper. And with that, it has a higher reverb and it kind of goes through space much better than analog ever did. Conference rooms and how we used to design conference rooms to keep sound in a specific room no longer works. 
we have to consider reverb in the room. So we have to look at softer materials in the room to ensure that people on the phone can actually hear what's occurring in the room. And then we also have to look at sound transmission from space to space because once someone's talking on a phone conference call, it's very easy to hear them from one room to the other. This is an example of taking into account decibels and how decibels work. I said to give you a little. Thank you. There. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, in the design of space. Now, let's take it back to that same conference room from an activity setting standpoint. Standard conference rooms, everyone designs them the same way. There's some big table in the room with chairs around it, and everyone has to stare at each other. Great for having a dialogue at a table or if someone's presenting at a screen that's at one side of the table. But if you want to be a team to start work around content, it's actually not designed in such a way that you can work around content. And often that setting is set up in such a way that you're, you're defending your ideas or you're conversating against the person on the other side of the table as opposed to collaborating with them against a problem that's set up in the space. So you could argue, and I would argue, that if you wanted to be a team in a conference space that was going to work around content and try and push that content forward, you may not put a table in the space, but you may, may make it all focused towards one wall where the content lives and be in a setting where you feel like a team, going back to your teams on the yep. football field, mm -hmm. that you're taking on that. And the second that you do that, you can start to have a dialogue where a leader in a room with a subordinate may actually feel like they're in equal footings, where the second they're sitting at the table, you're looking for approval of your ideas from said leader. Right, mm -hmm. pull the table out of the room, right? Pull the table out of the room. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not for or pull it to setting. the back and put snacks on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that. But plan. yeah, not for every setting. Not certainly. for every setting, not for every activity. But there is an activity like that that mm -hmm. occurs. Now, on the same note, if you set up that wall at the front of the room and you don't design it in such a way that you can actually write on it and tack stuff up and change what's occurring, all of a sudden you've then limited the activities that can happen in there again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that in the advancement of technology, there's still a benefit, a, a serious benefit, even to technology companies of analog technology like whiteboards and pinup mm -hmm. space and that that tactile input still has a tremendous value and i've seen it even more in tech heavy companies yeah. they're using them all the time yeah so. well tactile technologies are quick and cheap and easy right yeah. and so they belong right alongside more developed technologies yeah you're absolutely right i mean if you go to a, a high-tech environment you're going to see lots of writable surfaces you're going to see people doing post-it notes you're going to see um artifacts like social artifacts like the development like development of say sprints over time for say a product release for a, a, a particular technology and a lot of times that's not really elegant and clean and crisp it's down and dirty and simple and it's you know written in someone's handwriting that only that person can read. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you work off of that, so, it's, so let's take that idea for a second. You walk into a space and you've got this nice, clean, crisp wood floor and you've got this this table that's there and it's, it's pristine. kind of it's pristine wood or maybe, maybe it's really high end and it's like some granite or marble or something crazy, right? And, and all of your walls are clean and you got glass on each side. I would argue that the amount of innovation, your willingness to get messy and dirty is very different than a space that has a concrete floor, an exposed ceiling, 
the walls are just some plywood sitting up there. And that's why tech companies are taking some of those aesthetics when they're designing space. It's less about the aesthetic as it is giving permission to their employees to get dirty with their ideas and work in a different way. An example of an activity setting that's pushing a very specific activity that they want to occur versus just saying, well, it's a conference room. Here's our standards. Here's the image that we want to portray. Let's design it this way. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've seen the opposite, too, where we've worked for a legal firm where it was specifically about the aesthetic and impressing the client. And, you know, it, it's, well, mean, the, it's, it's and specific. It, mm -hmm. And in that case... They want the wood floor and the granite table and right. all that because they want people to have confidence that they've been there for a while. Right. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> they know what they're talking about, and they care about the detail and the permanence of what they're doing mm -hmm. because they're making decisions that impact people's lives. Right. right. Absolutely. Yeah. Versus Excellent. quick Excellent. iteration and failure. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, tangentially guidelines as a, a concept. Um, <clears throat> I think we've all universally seen our, our clients go away from standards towards guidelines. And I would even suggest that we're at the point where even guidelines as an idea are being more or less thrown out the window. Um, you mentioned, right, like in the design of a space, say I'm working off a guideline and I, I know that uh, people at a certain level get us are, are granted a certain type of space. And I know that a certain number of people share a certain number of resources and let's call that the guideline. But the reality is that... Um, you know, within a large organization, you might have a tech group, you might have a marketing group, you might have an HR function, you might have all these different needs. And so um, I would even suggest that we're starting to see our clients migrate towards design principles as an overarching directive for the organization, something that's universally true about the organization, almost analogous to say brand guidelines. But the reality is that developing a space in Topeka, Kansas is very different from developing a space in, you know, <laughs> off Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Um, and the way that those spaces operate should be different. And so our, our clients, I would suggest, are even beginning to move away from, say, universal guidelines and more towards a, a universal set of ideals, design principles, but the application of, the, of those ideals varies very differently based on the populations they're designing for. Drew, I absolutely agree. And usually those design principles are set on the backbone of that company's mission, cultural values, uh, purpose, everything that they're trying to achieve. And then with that, they are without a doubt creating identity and individualization for every specific site and helping to allow personal identity come in there, which coincidentally starts to combat one of those other concerns about open office is that open office is vanilla and everything's the same and you no longer have personal identity. Companies are recognizing that and they're creating open office solutions where personal identity goes beyond just your individual workstation and goes to your actual place, mm -hmm. which when done right, goes back to the binary that I do think exists, <laughs> good design versus bad design, yeah. uh, it's very effective. Yeah. What about okay design? No, <laughs> no room for okay in Dominic's okay. mind. It's good or it's bad. It's good or it's bad. Fair okay enough. Okay is bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's not good. We've had a bit of a conversation so far around um, leadership not going beyond, say, leadership endorsement, but to, to leadership really living and breathing and supporting um, the ideals of, say, an activity-based environment. And that amounts to more than, you know, Michael Bloomberg sitting with people in the bullpen. It, it's more than just that. It's more than just, you know, sitting with um, the rest of your workforce. I think authentic leadership stems from doing what you say and saying what you do and the alignment between those two things. You know, 
the reality is a lot of organizations are still operating, say, in a cubicle men mindset mentality. And there are some serious problems with cubicles, not the least of which is they're not great for, you know, people's health and well-being in the long run. So, you know, as as we evolve as people, as we evolve as a society, um, as new generations enter the workplace, the reality is the paradigms of the workplace will, will shift. And that shift necessitates change. And that change is dependent upon leadership, living, breathing, and believing what they're saying alongside other people. And so any organization that is entertaining the idea of adopting, say, a new way of working, the success or the failure of that endeavor is truly dependent on uh, you know, leadership signing up and getting in the front seat of the car from, from day one. So I think one of the things that we should build on and we should spend a little more time on is uh, really this conversation of desk ownership. Mm. Ah. So Drew, you kind of you kind of touched on it for a quick second when you were starting to talk about flexibility and agility. Um, and when we start talking about creating space to be activity setting based, what typically happens with companies is they're dealing with constraints, mm -hmm. some type of constraint typically always there's a financial <laughs> constraint there's always a schedule constraint there could be an existing facility constraint of some sort there's a business need which works out to be a constraint a lot of times where you start at and where you go in as a company is that everyone gets a desk and when you go into this idea that everyone gets a desk that's when you start getting into the real open office versus closed office. Well, if everyone gets a space, what's that space look like? How big is it? How nice is it? Are they going to get distracted? Are they not going to get distracted? Do they all get the same type of space? Do, Do some they people all get, get different types of space than others? Exactly. Now, here's, here's where it gets really complicated and where it gets very interesting in my perspective as well is when you start getting to, into this idea of activity-based settings, you can make a decision that everyone gets a space or you can make a decision that people share spaces. But the real question that you have to ask is when you look at their work and what they need to do on a daily basis, how much of their time do you want them doing that work at their desk versus them doing that work somewhere else? And if you answer that you want them to be doing it at their desk more than anywhere else, I'd argue you're no longer doing activity-based work settings. Mm -hmm. And... And the second that you say that you want them to work at their desk most of the time, then you better start thinking about how close are they to people? What is their visual privacy? How much is, how are acoustics working in the space? Do they have a way to actually let the people know around them that they're getting distracted or that they can't concentrate? Now, on the same note, if we go on that other side of the equation and we start saying, okay, we are going to design in such a way that everyone has a desk, but we don't care if they're there more than 10% of the time, and it's really for them to have a home base, and it's for them to have belonging, then all of a sudden you're creating all these spaces that actually work for the settings that they have, and you're encouraging them to move away from their desk and do things. And the second you do that, whether their desk is a three-foot desk or a six-foot desk or an office, doesn't really matter because that's not where they're doing the largest part of their work. The problem that most companies have when they go into this is they never answer that question starting out. They never think about where they want their people working and how they want their people working. And to build onto something that Drew was talking about earlier, if leadership is not aligned to that, it doesn't matter. So it really starts with leadership, leadership thinking about the culture that they want and what they want to achieve, and then based off of that, deciding how they want to create space and workplace to support that. And arguably, some companies that are very agile and are pushing it to the extremes, they'd argue that if you do go to activity-based settings, you actually don't need to give anyone a desk 
because they've got all the activity-based settings. But they have acknowledged that people still need a sense of ownership and a sense of place. Mm-hmm. And there's high levels of fear of being lost and not being part of the full organization. Belonging, yeah. Belonging. Mm-hmm. So if you don't give them the desk, and the desk is an easy way for someone to say, I do belong here, they do care about me, I am a part of this organization, then you need to figure out other ways to create that for them so that they feel like they're part of something larger. What are some other ways to do that? How do you get that sense of identity within a space when they don't have a desk with their name on it? So a lot of one of the concepts we kick around a lot is the, the concept of collective identity versus individual identity. Identity is a loaded topic, and we could probably do a po- whole podcast on the nature of identity at some other time. And maybe we should, um, and maybe we should bring in some psychologist <laughs> to help us unpack yeah, our own works. identities, and we'll really scare ourselves. Um, but you know, <laughs> who are you? Great question. <laughs> the idea of collective identity is that there's shared ownership of, um, say, a project or um, a place within the office, a place to put your mark on is really the, what we're talking about here. So, you know, a place to hang your hat, a place to put your purse, a place to um, store your belongings, certainly, but more to the point, a place where you can contribute and see your mark being made. Um, Dominic talked a little bit about, uh, you know, say certain design choices that are durable and meant to communicate permanence, long lasting, right? So things like granite countertops, et cetera, that say, don't touch me, I'm expensive. Yeah. The reality (laughs) is, um, you know, if you're designing for collective identity, people need to put their imprint onto whatever it is that you're designing. So, you know, it could be as simple, quite frankly, as providing a wall where people can pin up pictures with the family. I've seen that before and I've seen it be highly successful. Yeah, there's a lot of companies that'll do blackboard walls, for instance. Yep but a place where people can mark things up. Uh, more to the point, I think we're seeing many organizations that we work with, work with shift towards project-based environments where you aren't assigned, say, to a desk uh, or to a cubicle or to an office. You're assigned to a space where your team uh, lives together for the duration of a project. And in that space, you're welcome to interact with that space as you see fit. So you know, if you want to put up fam- pictures of your family from the weekend, you're welcome to do that. Um, If you want to write on a a surface, you're welcome to do that. If you want to have a wall where you capture all the funny quotes that emerge over the course of your project, you know, through the ups and downs, you're welcome to do that. All my Dilbert cartoons. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, welcome to do that too, right? But the idea is to encourage people to engage with their environment as opposed to, um, you know, just being stationary within their environment. Um, You also mentioned something, Dominic, which I thought was really interesting which is a lot of organizations kind of want to have their cake and eat it too, right? So they're maybe entertaining the idea of activity-based working or agile, but they're also um, still somewhat stuck in the notion that everyone needs a desk. And I'm not endorsing either of those two concepts. Well, and, and it's not saying that you have to do one or the other. It's Correct. just saying if you do them both together, right. it's a lot more expensive. Right, and, and oftentimes we hear from clients that, that go that route, right? Um, that believe in this kind of false dichotomy that everyone everyone gets a desk, but we're also gonna have this agile environment. What they tend to see happen is people go and sit in their probably smaller desks. They don't take advantage of um, the whole variety of spaces that have been designed to encourage them to interact and communicate with each other. And, and instead that happens in this smaller desk environment. People are unhappy with the, the you know environment they've been given, which in their minds is a smaller desk. At the same time, leadership is unhappy because no one's taken advantage of all this really expensive, cool new space that we provided yeah. for them. Yeah. And everyone is unhappy. <laughs> and, and in building on that, typically when that occurs, the leadership is not showing the individuals how they can do that and really supporting them to go to that space, which is why they don't do it. Yep. Now, the other side of that, same scenario, 
is let's say they are actually using only activity-based settings, then the leadership's mad that their office only looks 50% utilized, which pretty much every office out there is only 50% utilized. Mm -hmm. Where's everyone? They're not working. They're not sitting at the desk. Our office is only 50% utilized. Oh, wait, what do you mean they're not working? <laughs> they're working in different places. Oh, but yep. they're not at their desks. So they're not working. Right. That's the other Command side of that control. same. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. That same conversation. Your perspective, yeah. Dominic. I mean, what have you seen recently that's shocked or surprised or wowed you? You know, what's made an imprint on you that you've kind of taken back from, say, an environment that you've been in that you, you found surprising, or maybe even a project that you're currently working on that you think is indicative potentially of what the future might hold for workplace? It's a very loaded question there, Drew. Um, <laughs> See, I'm not the only one. <laughs> At least we're consistent in this room. That's right. I feel like I need to ask a really crazy No lack of now. ambition in this Jeez. room. <laughs> part A, part B, you know, subset. I can't say that I've seen, I've seen like a full-out example that's super excited me. But I've seen moments of brilliance and mm -hmm. things out there that are really making a difference. Like there's companies out there that are really investing in their fitness centers, for instance. Let's just start there. Simple thing. Company wants a fitness center. Great, let's do a fitness center. Let's just throw a bunch of treadmills in a room. Doesn't matter which, what room's open. That room's open. Let's throw them in there. Uh -huh. No, not coming to saying, no, we actually want you to be healthy. So if we're going to build a fitness center, we're going to make sure you have natural light and views. We're going to make sure that we actually do classes where people teach you how to do the stuff correctly. We're going to make sure that we have multiple different types of equipment. And we're not just promoting physical health, but promoting all levels of health. Companies actually creating um, coffee bistros. But when they're creating them, they're creating them like third place. You walk in them, you wouldn't even know that they're part of the corporation. Mm -hmm. They feel very different. Mm -hmm. They're welcoming. They're trying to actually create something that pulls people out of their everyday. You've got companies that are starting to think about uh, their full-out process of how they get work done. And more specifically, you see this associated with some of the technology companies taking on the idea of Agile. And when they're doing that, they're actually thinking about, well, what is our process? How do we get from point A to point B? What do our sprints look like? And then as they do that, they're designing space to support that. But those companies are smart enough to realize, you know, whatever we're doing today, we're going to get better tomorrow. So it better be flexible and it better be able to change. And when we're doing this, we need space for individuals, but we also need space as teams. And they're both vitally important. How do we connect those together? I think that's really interesting. Um, you know, the thing that I'd like to see out there that I haven't seen yet, and I, I wish as an architecture firm we just had a bunch of venture capitalists behind us we can spend as much money as we wanted. If you're listening, um, venture capitalists, yeah, we're here. If you're listening, venture capitalists, and you like this idea, I'll only take a small cut. You're probably going to run with this, and I'm going to stay poor. It's okay. I get it. Um, but, you know, still be very interested to look at space as evolving the same way that culture and people do. So far, most space investments are still capital investments that are spread on the books for years. And what ends up happening is that the space, you know, we're, we're asked to future-proof. We're mm -hmm. pretty much asked to do the impossible. Mm -hmm. um, the only way to create something that's future-proof is to create it so boring that it, it could work in any future and no one would really care. Mm -hmm. Which is, which hanger, is, yeah. hey, let's, let's go back to open office and why open office uh -huh. fails so often. That's another reason that it fails so it's often. The movie Brazil all over again. Yeah, it's <laughs> nasty, isn't it? But wouldn't it be awesome if space could evolve and did evolve with the organization and companies could figure out how to invest 
in that and put money into that so that those assets could change. And then as needs occurred, people had no issue with spending some money and changing stuff around. Now, you know, I know the furniture industries are interested in that and they've been trying to do that with walls and move around, but it's not it's not flexible enough and it's not actually meeting the need. But the same time that they do that, they're not renting the wall to you. You're still buying the wall, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's still an asset yep. that's yep. on your books for a long period of time. I think that's an opportunity that's out there. And if you actually got to something of that nature, it would start to support more activity-based settings and more activity change. Um, but it's it's not really there yet. Now, the other piece of it is a lot of times when we're dealing with corporate companies, we're dealing with their real estate organizations. Some of the really lucky real estate organizations come up through their IT business and have a connection to technology. And then if they're really lucky, they've also got a connection to their human resources. And when they're trying to solve all the problems, they're trying to solve them all together. Yet they're trying to solve them as a team of 200, 300, 400 people. Mm-hmm. Gin- ginormous team. As we talk about that ideal solution of true activity settings and creating HR policy, leadership direction, technology that supports really doing whatever work that you want and creating in a, a, a place, there's no company that's done that, that, that I know of that's done it super successfully. I mean, even, you know, your Google examples, like they still have their own desks, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. yep. they're creating all this stuff. The reality mm-hmm. is they've got so much cash flow, they can right. do whatever they want. And for most they don't have the depreciating asset problem. They don't have the depreciate asset problem. No. Yeah. Now, I would love to see a company actually take it on. The problem is, is for a company to take it on, they have to do it all. You can't chunk it out and make it work. You've got to take on the solution on all levels from making sure that you have the right technology to support the business to the right policies and leadership buy-in and leadership of the idea mm-hmm. to actually creating the solution of activity-based settings. Mm-hmm. And to date, while we've got a lot closer, and I do think it, it has a level of the future, there's not been companies that have really done it. Now, I think there, you know you get into small firms, mm-hmm. 20 people places, mm-hmm. they've done it on some level, but even they, I mean, they've got restriction of size and, you know, to really get concentration space versus the type of collaboration that they need, they're still doing multifunctional right. in some way. So that's what I would love to eventually see. Yeah. And I think would be interesting. Um, I heard subscription-based furniture in there in my brain. Where, you know, some sort of you pay into the furniture b- vendor a subscription fee and then you need to make a change and it gets swapped out. and it's But, but it goes across yeah. the whole industry. I mean, it yeah. shakes up everything, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, construction firms aren't set up to not be full-out projects. Architects aren't set up to be on call <clears throat> to do nope. just creative thinking and proactive right. analysis. I think it's something that's coming. Mm-hmm. It's got to come mm-hmm. at some point. How soon and how much and how it disrupts, I don't know. But as you go to more centering of space, the real capacity and value in centering space is proactive design yeah. versus reactive projects. Yeah. And proactive design really correlates with you know, space that's based on activity as opposed to space that's assigned. Yep. Yeah, space, that assigned is, space that's assigned is a problem to be solved. You know, Dominic gets this space, Drew gets that space. We've solved the problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> activity-based working is more atelic, which is a big word to say. It's a moving target, um, right? So the activities might change tomorrow, and it's a shift in, in 
treating space as a problem to be solved to a, a strategy that might evolve. Um, and some of the stuff you're describing, I think, is almost the collapsing amongst, say, the different service providers that are out there trying to design space for the people that use that space. Um, I think, you know, organizations that I've seen that are leading the way are beginning to think in terms of experience design, um, and not just experience design in terms of the senses, but the experience of uh, you know crafting an experience for your employees that reflects the ideals of the organization at as many touch points for your personnel as possible. So oftentimes you'll hear you know the the West Coast example thrown out there. I think you mentioned earlier um, in the podcast, you know, taking say uh, the Apple shuttle from your door in San Francisco all the way down to to Apple's headquarters <clears throat> and back, um, and you know. Being a part of the Apple organization at all touch points along the way, you know, by the way, probably getting woken up by your devices in the middle yeah. of the night as, you know, your team counterparts are working across the globe. But um, a shift in the way that space is considered from, say, project, discrete, point in time, to space is, quite frankly, a reflection of your organizational ideals. And if you are continuously focused on your organizational ideals and bringing those ideals to life, it communicates to your employees that you care about them. Um, and quite frankly, the the material and the environments that you provide for them to get their jobs done are important to you because they're important to them. And so it's a it's a mindset shift, isn't it? Uh, away Absolutely. from, yeah, just a string of projects to what do we want to be? What are we actually doing here? And what's the environment we want to live our lives in? Because ultimately that's what the workplace is. Yeah. I have a callback question for you, Drew, since you asked it of Dominic. Do you have any spaces that you were particularly excited about or got you thinking? Yeah, I do. Um, so uh, I figured that's why you asked him. <laughs> <laughs> Just teasing. Go so ahead. I was I was floating out this idea of you know experiential design before. Um, most organizations that we work with have a story to tell. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, let's say you're a software development company, and the story to tell is the story of your product release cycles. It's really interesting when your space begins to reflect those product release cycles. So I had the good fortune of uh, visiting Adobe um, a couple of months ago and got to see their Photoshop floor. Pretty awesome. I mean, you can actually walk back in time into huddle rooms, into phone booths, into conference rooms that are designed to reflect the date of release of different Photoshop uh, cycles. So you can open a door and it's 1990. Uh, you wow. know, down to the wallpaper, down to the newspaper that's Vanilla staged on a desk. On the Vanilla ice, yeah, <laughs> on repeat. And then you can walk down the hall and step into 1996, right? Um, and so the idea there is, you know, as an employee, you're engaging with the history of the organization. Now, now, interesting um, example from the West Coast, but you know, also work with construction companies. Uh, locally, we work with Messer recently. Messer is a construction company in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, you know, an expanding construction company um, in the Midwest and the Southeast. Uh, that project was all about the Messer identity. So it was all about construction, all about demonstrating facility with respect to construction, materials, methodologies, the stuff the building was made of. Obviously, it's a con it's constructed, um, but the details are exposed and it's is used as a uh, teaching device for you know younger employees in the organization or less experienced employees in the organization. When you're talking about how to pour concrete, I can walk over to a desk and show you <laughs> yeah. uh, how concrete is poured because their desk in the front office and the front lobby is this big monolithic desk. Um, so, you know, design space is not just a, a problem to be solved. It is that, but there's something that there's an opportunity to take advantage of there, which is you're going to spend some money on this. Make sure that money's well spent. Right. That's been fascinating. One of my favorite pieces, uh, we, we did have the opportunity to talk to St Tim Stegerwald, the president of Messer Construction, and what I, one of the things I like, not just the story, but there was a component of health and wellness, 
where the staircase that led between the first and second floor was bought, brought forward. So as you come in, that's what you see, and you, you have see. to go around the corner to find an yeah. elevator. Yeah. So it's like this subliminal uh -huh. health and wellness. And it's wellness. a small move, right? Yep, but, but a, a big impact. Yeah, yeah, nudging people in the right direction. Yeah, good design. Good design. <laughs> <laughs> not, not okay design. Not o yeah. <laughs> Thank you for joining us at Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP. This concludes our discussion with Drew Susco and Dominic Iacobucci of BHDP on the topic that started about open office and ended with good and intentional design and not just okay design. If you appreciate what you've heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. Join us for another episode to see what topics drive design.